Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this awesome episode with Jared Roden, I just want to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, Houghton Horns has expanded their policies for uh, what you buy to include a 15-day money-back guarantee with free shipping on all new instruments and accessories. I've mentioned before that they have a free virtual equipment consultation to help you make the right choice for that instrument. And so if you pair that with multiple easy financing options, when you do decide which instrument is right for you, terms and conditions apply, it's clear that Houghton Horns is making it much easier to test drive and purchase the best equipment during these uncertain times. I'll make sure to link a video that I made with Derek Wright, one of the co-owners of Houghton Horns, uh, that demonstrates the virtual equipment consultation. So you can check that out in the link in the description. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer is their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. And welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I am Ryan Beach, and today we're all in for a treat. I am here with Jared Roden, who uh, plays the bass trombone in Time Magazine, recently said that Jared is the smartest person in the world who also plays bass trombone. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think my time subscription has run out. I didn't wasn't even aware of that. You didn't see that? No, I didn't see it. It's a real thing. Yeah. For oh, sure. Was it like an online thing or does it come in the mail? No, the real time magazine. Well, that's interesting. Thank yeah. you for pointing that out. Are you happy about that? Oh, well, why wouldn't I be? It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jared and I, he's here playing with the Alabama Symphony Orchestra this week. We're doing Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony. Uh, Jared often... Uh, he, uh, cohabitates in our domicile and, uh, we thought we would do a podcast episode cause we've been having a lot of great discussions recently about, uh, pedagogy, pretty specifically about brass pedagogy, but, uh, some bigger topics, some, you know, overarching topics that could affect everybody. So I kind of just wanted to get him on the podcast and we could sort of try to uh, continue a discussion like that. So to help establish, I, I, all of you know that I, I've taught a little bit, but most of my thoughts are going to come from the research and the testing I've done through this gold method stuff and trying to understand how to better share about practice organization and what's the best way to develop skill and stuff like that. So that's going to be where I'm coming from. Jared, why don't you share with my audience some of your uh, teaching pedigree and kind of where you might be coming from uh, with your thoughts? Well, most of my teaching for the last couple of decades has been strictly collegiate. So I've been a trombone instructor at Butler University in Indianapolis for, you know, since 1990, I think. And uh, about the same time I started there, I was also did a full-time interim 
professorship, I guess, at Ball State University, and that you know included the whole teaching studio, faculty brass quintet, the Muncie Symphony, the uh, trombone choir. About the 2000, I was a guest lecturer at Northwestern where I conducted the trombone choir, taught a partial load of students, and uh, ran studio class and such, and was you know, of service to the department. I've been a sabbatical replacement at IU, the Jacobs School of Music, IU in Bloomington, where, where I did my graduate degree. So I... I filled in for Carl Lenthe a couple times and Dee Stewart a couple times when they were on sabbatical. And, uh, and that's about it. I did for about 10 years I, with Joe Burnham and Abby Conant. We ran this thing called the uh, uh, International Trombone Camp in Fasano, Italy. I don't think I knew and, that. No, it was great. And so, you know, we had a lot of guest artists. You know, we had all kinds of people. I mean... Uh, CSO section as a section, oh, Kay right. he and uh, Jay and Charlie is individuals. Uh, Joe Alessi came, Ron Barron came, Jiggs Wiggum was there, um, Stuart Dempster came. I'm probably forgetting somebody. And so it was about a you know five day thing, four or five day thing where there were master classes, recitals, and and whatnot. And it was really. You know, and then some trombone choir and some final concerts outdoors in a lovely castle. It was quite the scene, and um, and that was a riot. So yeah, yeah. So I've and then we covered and the previous time. This is the second time Jared's been on the podcast. So the previous time we talked a lot about uh, just his freelancing career and given some just some general ideas and tips. But we kind of went over your, a lot of your performing career in that one. So. On top of the teaching pedigree, you have just such a wealth of different types of experiences that you, I'm, I know you draw upon in your teaching. So uh, he just, yeah, we we agree on a, a lot of things, um, but he's just got a, a much more sort of elegant way of saying some of the things that I've said. So I think it would be cool to hear what he's going to say. So we're going to start this interview. We're going to talk about scales for a second. Scales. You had a unique way of thinking about not only working on scales, but how to integrate it into a much bigger picture. I kind of wanted you to share that, and we could kind of dive into um, how to take this discipline of scales and turn it into something that's significantly more functional for like a real-world application. Well, scales are songs. They're melody, okay? And, and I think a lot of people play, particularly if it's like a requirement, like a, a proficiency examination or something like that, you know, yeah, they, they they learn them in kind of a rote fashion. You know, it, it's a sequence of valve combinations as a sequence of slide positions, you know, and I don't think people really play them melodically and to develop a real sense of the tonality that they're in, you know, because there's a formula for, <clears throat> what is it, the Ionian mode, major scale, mm -hmm. you know, whole, whole, half, whole, 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 half, you know. And, and so the, you know, for me, I mean, in the keys that people are most comfortable in the ones that they play in all the time, you know, it's, it's pretty good. And then the keys that, you know, they're less familiar with, I mean, it's not so good. So I like to, <laughs> I like, you know, so when I have young students who are preparing for their scale proficiencies, I mean, everything to me sort of sounds like some screwed up version of E flat 
doesn't matter what key it is. It's like it's somehow it's a screwed up E flat scale. You know, it, it doesn't really ever settle into G flat major <laughs> from top to bottom. You know, it's like it's trying to be some other scale. And so, you know, so I, I like to break the scales down into, you know, tetrachords, the first five notes, the last, I mean, then, re, you know, repeat the fifth or something or, you know work on the top end of the scale, the bottom end of the scale, play around the cycles. And then, and then, you know, just kind of immerse yourself in a tonality, you know, play some etudes or some solos or some other things that are in that same key and really get a feeling for that key and the relationships of those notes is particularly the half steps, you know, and how they relate to the, the note they're going to or coming from. So, um, it really settles into into a key. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so, it, so those same notes are going to be in different places on your instrument, and if you're in other keys, you know, because how they relate and how they, you know, go from note to note, in a, in another tonalities is what makes it important. And so, when you play with you know very fine players, I mean, the, these things are evident. It just things just line up. Yeah. Things you know, it's it's there's no hunting around things. If something's even the slightest bit out of tune, it gets fixed in a mi microsecond. And there's not much. You you never have to talk about it. Yeah, because people have a highly developed sense of tonality, and um, so yeah, so this involves a lot of playing with drones, and I always encourage the kids to do this with with each other, take turns playing, you know scale and chord exercises with somebody being the drone and then take turns doing it. And, um, it, it really helps this. I think that's the most effective way and to play with another instrument instead of like a, an electronic drone right, or right. something like that. It's interesting. Cause there's that, there's a quote I think is attributed to bud Herseth that says, if it sounds good, it's in tune, you know? Where it's, it, but I can almost feel like we lose some of this nuance that like certain <laughs> notes are going to be in a different, like they could sound good, but you're talking about, I like the way you talk about it, that like a C and a C major scale is going to be in a different place than a C and a D flat major scale. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that could be difficult, and I'm just curious for like how you've developed it in your own playing, because trombone players have to do this like crazy because like there's, it's so easy to be in a probably a very slightly wrong spot. You know what I'm saying? Like, so to knowing where these notes are, how have you developed this? How do you know that you're headed in the right direction? Is it, I mean, you, we talked earlier about listening for the beats or, you know, where it's out of tune. Like, what does it look like to actually make some progress in this way? Cause like, I'm sure it can seem overwhelming to start be like, I'm just going to fix my ears. You know, that can seem overwhelming. Well, I, I think you really want to be able to make a, a, a relaxed centered sound. Okay. So that what you're, buzzing you know what you're inputting into the instrument the instrument is dialed in for that exact same frequency so for a trombonist that means accurate slide positions so you're not lipping notes because as soon as you start to do that then there's tension in the chops and then the, the tone suffers you know and then tension goes out the tension, room, yeah. tension kills tone mm -hmm. you know and i think it was charlie geyer maybe that said, I think that might be what you were alluding to. It, uh, and you would know because you study with them. It was a um, bad intonation is symptomatic of bad tone and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. Some, I think, I think that some, 
was attributed to him. I mean, Charlie harps on this all the time. You know, he's yeah. such like a, we would, we would be in like quintet coachings. And if we didn't feel prepared, we would just go like, ah, oh, Charlie, I, I can't remember like which of these notes are not in tune. You know what I mean? We just yeah. ask him an intonation and then we just let him talk for the next 50 minutes, you know, because similar to what you're talking about, we as brass players specifically, um, don't often really get as nitpicky as woodwind players or string players do. And being married to a clarinet yeah. player, I've I've like I've <laughs> actually learned quite a bit since I've had this job and just having some honest conversations with Kathleen. Like there have been times where she may be like, "Oh, you this sounds like maybe a little bit sharp, or this sounds a little bit this or that," and it's like I don't hear at all what she's talking about. And I had a job, you know, yeah. so it's clear yeah. that like mm -hmm. these this can take a long time to develop. Yeah, it's it, it's funny. There was a there was a an oboist that lived in Indy for a while and and a, and a flutist who's, who's now retired from the ISO apparently at some point in both of their development they had studied with a f some flutist or something and, but but anyway and so the first time they met each other um it was on a session and and uh, the oboist was there warming up and the flutist came in and then and then, and, you know, within seconds, they realized they had both had studied with this same person because the flutist said, yeah, I heard that scale. I had to ask. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, they're pretty attuned to that. You know, my wife is a violinist. You know, she studied with Joseph, Joseph Gingold at IU. And, and that was something that he would say. I would go to his master classes, too. And he would, you know. He was. He had this really low, gruff voice. You know, try to imitate his like scales, beautiful, perfect scales. You know? <laughs> yeah. So you just spend time doing it. Yeah. And it, they have to be beautiful and perfect. So, yeah. so getting back to like how that relates to a brass wind instrument, I think when we compromise or aren't precise enough you know with our as a trombonist your slide position because you're not that sure where the note is you know mm -hmm. and then so you get close and then then you kind of cram it you kind of push it one way or the other with your chops you know and then well that just wrecks the tone the yeah. tone and then it doesn't even if you get the fundamental in tune now the overtones are screwed up and it mm -hmm. doesn't sound in tune, especially if you're playing with other people. So you really want your, you know, your optimum sound, which is a very relaxed, focused, open sound. And that'll only happen when you dial in to like a really precise slide position for like whatever tonality you're in and whatever note that is and where it is in the scale and if it's resolving to something or where it's moving. I mean, you just really have to hear that. Um, and it, you know, it, it's a lifelong thing. Yeah. You just got to stay on top of that. I've talked about it on trumpet being a similar thing. It's not quite as, you know, you have it on literally every note, but you know, we use our slides for a few notes. And so for students I've demonstrated with like D and C sharp down on the bottom of the staff, um, I'll be like, you know, I can play this note in tune. I'll play some sort of scale and I'll play it and I can lip it down in tune. I'm like, that's technically in tune. But then when I use the slide, I, I try to point out, but this sounds the same as the other notes around it, you know, like right. it doesn't all of a sudden change in, in color and quality of sound just because. And so to me, trying to 
trying to play in tune is so much more about evenness of sound than it really, I mean, of course we want to do it, but another sort of way to think about, it, I'd be curious, actually, if we haven't talked about this, um, this idea of playing in the center of the sound and this relaxed sound. It's like you hear people sometimes who, who play maybe slightly high on the pitch. So it's a good sound, but it's not this full, open, beautiful sound. And then you just pull your tuning slide out a little bit and all of a sudden you're playing in tune, but it's not your optimum sound. But if only intonation is the thing that we're worried about, like yeah. we've covered well, that base. Well, think about the word scale. So, I mean, you know, it could be, um, I mean, a ruler is a scale, right? I mean, uh, a staircase like La Scala, the opera house, that's the scale. It's a big, there's a huge staircase that goes up, you know, to the entrance to the opera house. There's a, a scale model, you know, something, this is a one quarter size, it's one quarter scale violin, or, you know, or it's a verb to, you know, to scale a peak. You know, there's so that, I mean, I think the deal with a scale is, is it's a tool. Okay, so you use the scale. I mean, okay, so you figure out what key you're in. So now you can play in a certain key, and you can always keep refining that. But you can also use it, you know, as you said earlier, to 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 make evenness. You can use a scale to like have other notes teach other notes. You know, the good sounding notes teach the less good sounding notes how to sound. So you know, so you, if you progress from this register to this register using a scale. You know, you get a lot of, of uh, a consistent sound over yeah. a particular. I like I like to say, you know, as much as is possible. You know, every two octaves should be fairly uniform. So if you start at your lowest range and go up a couple of octaves, you know, you should be able to make all of those notes in that two octave range sound pretty similar. You know, and then start an octave higher and go two octaves. Every note in that continuum should have a lot of uniformity to the kind of the color and, and shape and sound, you know, yeah. depth of sound. Yeah, I totally agree. I think Kathleen and I have talked, been talking about this too. One thing that I, I, I think, well, so basically I, I've, I've said this thing when I teach sometimes it's like, I don't care what you play. I care how you play it. Like to me, what you're doing matters significantly less than the intention that's behind it. Right. And so with something like scales, I think it would be, it's cool because you can teach evenness. Like if, let's say you're slurring everything, you could teach evenness. Well, let's say you've got the scale, you've got all the notes and it's pretty even. Well, then you can add a layer of difficulty uh, like articulation, right? So now I'm going to tongue each of the notes, but I'm going to try to maintain that level of evenness that I had. And then from there, maybe you could slur to tongue to or different right. articulate. You know what I mean? Like you can use this as a tool to teach yourself all sorts of fundamental basic things oh, it, yeah, it's, without it's, leaving a scale. Right. It, it, yeah. It helps you traverse the range of the instrument. You know, it, it's not the only way to do it. You could just play random notes, you know, <laughs> but you know, it's a handy, it's a handy way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I guess I say that because it's very easy to get caught up in like, well, I use this book for this thing and I use this book for this thing and I use this book for this thing. And then scales are just, oh, I just do that because I have this test I have to, you know, I have to prepare yeah. for. So I'll just pick it up here. But understanding that they can be incredible tools uh, for development because it's so basic that you have the ability to really turn your focus on whatever it is you're actually trying to accomplish, the how of whatever you're trying to do. Yeah, it's a vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great way to talk about it. You talked about your optimum sound a little bit, and I know this is sort of just your 
part of your overall philosophy as a teacher, trying to get your optimum sound. You had talked about some other things about, you said like the difference, like how would you sound like Joe Alessi or something there? What's the difference between you and Joe Alessi? Do you know what I'm talking about? That part oh, of that, we oh, had the, that oh. was over at, uh, we were at La Bruge when we were talking about that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, that was a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. If you just take like some, e the easiest note for you to produce, okay? You know, something in the middle register, your go-to note, you know, like if somebody bet you a million dollars that you're going to hit this note cleanly, what note would you pick? You know, <laughs> that note. So, yeah. So, so there's no reason you, no matter how young a player you are, I mean, you know, assuming you just have a couple of years under your belt, I mean, you have, there isn't any reason for you not to be able to make that note sound like you're idle. There's not a technical, physical reason, impediment that would prevent you from doing it. You know, you're strong enough. You got two lungs, you got two lips, you got two ears, you got two nostrils, you got two eyeballs, you know, you got two hands, two feet, you know, two kidneys. I mean, you, you could, you, two lungs, I say lungs, you know, you know I mean, <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Like, what's yeah, the impediment? Yeah. The, the impediment is, is you don't really know what he sounds like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, so that thing—that's what's missing—is this germ of a, of the idea, the impetus. That's what you know. What am I producing? What does that sound like? And so that's where you know a lot of most of the work has to happen. Is has to be conceptual. So you so you're you're launching your sound from a, a place where it's secure in yeah. your imagination. One way I like to think about doing this, because uh, listening is the most obvious way, right? Sure. Preferably live music, so you hear what it sounds like in an acoustic environment, but recordings certainly can suffice. One thing, I, one way I like to do it is to try to then use adjectives to describe the particular sound, so yeah. it becomes very uh, tangible. It's not sort of this, like, I hear this sound, and it's just this thing, like, floating, yeah, yeah. floating around in my head, but it's pure. I actually have a story about this. I... I played i went to a master class series at northwestern between my junior and senior year it was like a week-long thing with charlie and barbara and i played i don't know what i played some like rustique some other like you know pretty decent solos and uh, after that i played i think it was rustique's charlie guyer said to me ryan you have everything you need you just need a sound to die for that's what he told me and that's such a cool comment. At that point in time, I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but then I was like, well, how do I do that? You know, yeah. like, how do I get a sound to die for? And so I, I remember this very vividly, actually. My senior year, I started thinking about, well, what is a sound to die for? And I started, well, I know Chris Martin. I, I remember thinking, I know Chris Martin has this sound. Everyone talks about a sound. I had never heard him play at this point. But I remember thinking... Well, I bet his sound is really pure, right. and I bet his sound is really brilliant, and I bet his sound has a lot of focus. And I just made up adjectives that I thought made up basically a sound to die for, and then I started thinking, well, is my sound pure? I'd go play up against a wall, and like I could hear stuff in my sound, and I'd go get somebody. I remember that. I'd go get somebody. I'd be like, do you hear stuff in my sound right now? <laughs> be like, yeah, it's kind of I'll be like, oh, I can't have that. You know, I'd start freaking out. I got to move closer to this pure uh, thing, right? And it was just an interesting experiment because it actually gave me a tangible thing to work towards rather than just, like you said, this amorphous right. thing. Yeah, I have that. I, that That's an assignment is, yeah, I'll give kids, you know, just, okay, come back with a paragraph. 
about like what's your ideal sound yeah if you could make any sound in the world what would it sound like you know because i could you ask him you say like well you know describe like your perfect sound and it's like uh, good good <laughs> a bit big uh, loud <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i said this is all vague this yeah. is too vague yeah. i mean you have to be able to be able to pick it out you know if you could if it's, it's like looking into like a, a meadow full of flowers and one of those flowers is the perfect one you yeah. know and you got to be able to find it like, right right now it's just got to be sticking out you know i say it's like looking you know from the fourth floor of some building into a parking lot okay and like all the cars are some, you know, beige, silvery, uh, you know, gray, you know, all of these yeah. shades that you see, you know. It all and looks then, the same. Kinda. Right. And then there's a yellow Ferrari. Yeah. And this, it's the only car that's not this beige, you know, yeah. gray color. You know, I mean, that's you have to be able to, like, put your finger on you know, that kind of a sound has to be, you know, in the forefront of your imagination. So yeah, it's, it's detailed, you know? Yeah. No, I think adjectives certainly help. And what you just talked about is worth expanding upon because I remember like someone, a few times I've had either like lessons or whatever with people. And, you know, I'll say like, what is like, they're doing like urban articulation extra. I'll say, what's the, what are you trying to accomplish here? And they're like, well, I want it to sound better. I was just, I can't think of anything more like useless, basically. I want to sound better. Well, and how would you quantify better? Yeah. Like, do you want to miss fewer notes? Do you want the articulations to be more consistent? Do you want, like, it, like, do you want it to sound a certain way? You know, like, what would better be? Being able, like, I the G of the gold method is goal-oriented, and it's certainly as many different, like, types of goals as you can find. But one that's often overlooked is, like, what's the actual, like, what am I trying to accomplish with this? Not just, what's what do I want to practice today? But how would I know that I was successful in what I practiced? And you can only do that by being able to define, like you're saying, with such clarity what it is that you want in the end. And then you can sort of see if you've moved the needle on any given day. And then it takes the pressure. I feel like, oh, I'm not there, but I see I moved the needle. Maybe tomorrow I'll move the needle again. And then you just do that over the course of time instead of like, well, I don't know. I just want to sound better. But since you can't quantify it, you're like, well, I sounded, yeah. maybe I sounded better, but I also sounded bad. So everything must be horrible. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But, Go ahead. Do you have something you're going to say? I forgot already. That's all right. Yeah. That happens. Yeah. I, I think this is important because, I mean, above all the other organizational tools that I've shown you, you know, like that's something you can't skip over. It's just a really specific idea of when I do this exercise, I want to be able to do it in this particular specific way. And I'm going to have that, like you said, in the forefront of my imagination. And I'm, I'm going to actually, I'm going to think so hard. My brain will hurt after this. You know, I think that's yeah. a pretty important part. Like in the beginning, it's okay. If your brain hurts because you're super focused on exactly what you're, 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 you're forcing that sound to be in your head. I think it gets mm -hmm. easier after that, but it's better than not having it. But your what's your take on that? Well, does your brain ever hurt when you play the trombone? Yeah, when, when I'm when I'm practicing well, and I'm right, you know, and, and I'm and I'm really focused, and you know, I'm not distracted by anything. 
and I'm and I'm you know pursuing a very something very specific. Yeah. That that when you're when you're when you're a hundred percent well, if you're I don't know if you're ever a hundred percent, but when you're all in in concentration and listening and you know that feedback loop of hearing and doing and hearing and doing, you know, yeah, that can take it out of you. Yeah. I mean, thirty minutes and I'm cooked. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, but that's the kind of focus we need for concerts, I think, right? Mm -hmm. To be able to, all the distractions, everything else going on, to be able to bring that, you know, depending on what position you're playing. I think when you're playing section positions, it shifts a little bit. You know, you're trying to get the sound of whomever you're playing with next to you, the principal or whatever. But the same idea exists. Like, your ability to focus at a high level is what will dictate your ability to play at a high level, I think. Yeah, and, and being aware. I mean of everything you, you know like where i'm sitting i'm sitting next to the tuba player and we have a lot of together you know we play in unison and octaves all the time and then i'm you know i'm part of the trombone section so you know i've got a job to do there and listen and be together and balance and you know and tune and everything and then and then there's other stuff you know you just have to be aware of like you know i'm always i always have like in my peripheral vision i always try to see the bass bows I always try to see the timpani sticks, you know, it's information. Yeah. It's information about, you know, when things start happening, it's, it's, it's awareness that, that will inform when you do something and how you're going to do it. A lot so, of times, cause you know, I mean, yeah. it, it, being, you know, on a, a bass instrument, you know, you oftentimes, particularly in the classical repertoire, I mean, you're, you're you know, you're with the basses, the cello bass part and all this sort of stuff. And they're, oftentimes you know way far away from you and they're not that easy to hear especially if you're playing so you know i mean so that visual cue is important you know so i mean you, you're kind of aware of what the conductor's doing to some degree but mostly you have to play with your other musicians so you have to there's that calculation of like okay distance what am i hearing what am i seeing you know what do, how do i have to adjust for this how do i have to adjust for like what register and volume i'm at and where what register i'm in and how quick is the response and you know how far am i from everything else you know so yeah but this has come from like a lifetime of being aware right yeah. like i would imagine someone just starting out is not going to be aware of all of these different variables you know so i'm curious i guess i don't know but, if i've ever asked this question like for you, was this like a teacher kind of made you aware of these things and you just started trying to do it? Or do you have like actual stories of I was not aware of this thing and something happened and that made me become, I needed to become aware of that. Usually through negative experience, we find out these things are more well, important. I mean, well, when you're in the brass section, particularly in the low brass section, your whole life, you're, you're being told constantly that you're behind. Yeah, yeah. It's late, it's late, it's late. So, I mean, so, I mean, you, you hear that from an early age, you know, but, you know, there's only so much you can do about that as an individual because you're a part of a section, right? Okay. And But there's other times, you know, you just, you get a comment from somebody that you, uh, you know, look up to, who, who you respect, and they, they might say something like this, that, the other thing, you know. Mm -hmm. I remember once, <laughs> okay, he says, to be light is a sin, but to be early is unforgivable. <laughs> He's talking about Michael Mulcahy, second trombone of Chicago, for those of you that aren't familiar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just listening. It's listening. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a, 
So yeah, yeah I mean, you just really have to, and that's that's the awareness, you know. Yeah, I'd, I mean, I, I don't know how you like. I don't know if you can actually listen harder, or it's just. But it's a balance because you know you have to keep concentrating on what you're doing. Well, I was just know, gonna to, say, yeah. So, but I was gonna say that you part of what this is is I think there is a hierarchy here. I think it's virtually impossible to listen outwards if you're unable to with some level of sort of consistency and you automation almost, right? Yeah. Do the things you're trying to do on your instrument. I think it's virtually impossible. This is like why the idea of being prepared for rehearsals in school is so important. Sure, it's so you can mimic what it is to be a professional, but like I don't necessarily have to prepare for every show I do here either, right? So the idea of being prepared and ready to me has so much more to do with what then can I pay attention to in the rehearsals that I can only work on in a rehearsal setting. What am I going to listen to? And, you know, how is this going to slow down? Where am I going to place my note? Especially as principal trumpet, you know, it's like I have to be acutely aware of how I'm going to. I've gotten better at this, I think, but acutely aware of like not only where am I going to place it, like within what the violins are doing, or how am I going to do this in such a way that everybody else can figure out what I'm doing too, so that we come in as like a unit or something like this. But that's come, I've become better and better at that. Not just the more that I've done it, but the more skill I've gotten as a player. I find myself to devote more mental focus towards the the whole, so to speak, you know? Does that make yeah. sense? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and in a leadership position, that's that's uh, yeah, it's gonna all be, the more important yeah. because people are depending on you to be, you know, consistent. Yeah, and, and so it's like finding something. For me, it's just the way I'm breathing – Right now, we've talked about this a bunch, but to say it, the way I'm breathing is really like what I'm really focused on that because it's something that is reliable that I have seen uh, that it positively affects my consistency so that I can be a consistent player, you know, because as I didn't used to I, I wasn't always this way. I didn't always show up to the first rehearsal prepare. I thought I'll just use the rehearsals to learn it. But now I totally get why it's important for me to show up to the very first rehearsal knowing what I'm doing. So that everybody else can figure out what I'm doing, you know, unless we all called each other and had a sectional, that's the time you figure it out in rehearsals. So, um, yeah, finding that kind of cue or that kind of thing that unlocks my optimum sound, as you would say it, um, in a way that's like, I don't have to think too much about it, right? It's not like this right. whole progression of how I'm breathing and where I'm sitting and where are my elbows and like, is my mouth open just enough that I can get, you know what I mean? It's just like a quick breath cue. And I can focus on that and everything kind of layers on top of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess there's nothing to say to that. Yeah. I thought you might have like a story from somebody. Yeah. <laughs> I usually think about breathing when I play, you know, I don't know. <laughs> We can move no, on to well, Jerry. Uh, yeah, do you well, have something a story? I do. I mean, you know, it, it you know it takes a lot of. Oh, there's so much to talk. About. I don't know. Um, if I have to play like a, a windy passage or a long thing or something that's loud and fairly long, you know, I will breathe. If I if if I can, you know before the initial entrance, I will breathe slowly for a while. And then top off the breath rhythmically, hmm. you know. Interesting. 
So, so and breathe. And I find breathing through the nose sometimes is even more relaxing than breathing through yeah. the mouth. You know. So, but well, it's interesting you bring up the rhythmic part of it. I think that's something yeah. I do too. I don't necessarily breathe slowly through because I don't think I need nearly as much air as you do. But I think for almost every single entrance, I think purely metronomically. It's like I'm giving myself a, right. a prep beat cue. Right, breathing rhythm. I mean, yeah. you hear that all the time. And and I try to do that too, but I'd rather, in, instead of trying to suck a full tank in one beat, which you can do, yeah. you know, I might take three beats sure. and then the last little bit, I'll, I'll breathe rhythmically. That's an interesting way to like still have that rhythmic thing because yeah. – I mean, we don't need to top off hardly ever, you know, because for trumpet. So I don't really think of, I, I'm basically yeah. trying to breathe no more than like 75% of my capacity, somewhere around mm. 25. I'm like, it's time to take a breath, even no. if it's kind yeah. of in the middle of something. I mean, a lot of people say, uh, just take a conversational breath. You yeah. Know? yeah. And I think for a lot of playing, that's, that's fine. But, but for that, I mean, not, but not in a Tchaikovsky symphony. Right. It's not going to cut it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you're going to need, you're going to need your capacity. Yeah, so I think we should talk about too. You mentioned Tchaikovsky, and obviously these are very loud dynamics we're we're playing with. And when I was a kid, I a kid when I was younger, I I often just thought about that as brute force, right? Yeah. I'm just going to yeah. shove as much air as I possibly can through my instrument, and I don't care if the sound is good. If people are cringing at my playing, that's a good thing. That's a good sign that I'm playing loud enough, you know. And now. That's obviously ridiculous, but I know a lot of people can fall into that trap, especially young brass players. Now I think about it so much more and just purely in terms of articulation, like how hard I'm tonguing is going to dictate how loud the thing sounds. Um, I don't know if it's the same for trombone. Like, how do you, how do you manage color when you're trying to play different, you know, like a Tchaikovsky thing versus, you know, a nice little opener piece. Like we have this Caldridge Taylor piece, yeah. like we're not going to be playing with those dynamics or are you physically doing something different with your air? Like, how are you managing these different colors? What's your, well, I, I think when you, when you get into the, you know, fortissimo plus area, I mean, you're moving a lot of air. I mean, it's air speed. So, and I think that's what, you know, it gives the sound its brilliance and vibrancy is, is that, mm -hmm. you know, that's what pushes it past a noble, uh, you know, a noble forte sound, you know, to something that's, you know, brassier, more, you know, have a little more zip to it, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So I, yeah, that, I think it's airspeed. Yeah. So yeah. speed, not necessarily volume, right. Or volume being the amount, not like the. Well, that, I, for, but it's different for, for you than it is yeah, for me. I mean, I, vo volume more, I think, is register dependent, mm -hmm. and uh, the volume of air. Yeah, like yeah, the yeah. Speed no, has I, a lot to do with the color. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, because you know you can play a really soft dynamic, but still want a somewhat brilliant color to it. You don't yeah. want it to be a dull sound. So even though it's not a, a, a Vast, it's a small quantity of air. It still has a lot of energy in it, so yeah. it could have some velocity to it as well. I mean, this may be not how brass players think about it, but I actually, I generally conceptually try to think of my sound having the same airspeed all the time, like hundred miles per hour all the time, no matter what. It won't end up being that way, right? Yeah. But I like I find myself <laughs> airballing significantly fewer notes doing that because there's like a, a you know the sound is it's vibrating and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and then, yeah, for me, like I said, it's like when I'm playing the difference between two and three Fs is just tonguing even harder generally. And that creates that, that even more of an exciting pop at the front of the note. And I think the perception of that pop is what creates the dynamic. I don't know if you agree with that or have a different take though. Um, I don't know. We might be getting into some semantics. I, I'm, I'm not. Sh- okay, we yeah, can abandon I, it. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm saying uh, well, I haven't said anything yet. But I guess for for me, I don't think about. I try not to think air on the way out. I think about air on the way in mm-hmm. and sound on the way out. Mm-hmm. I just I just try to you know blow sound out of the trombone. Yeah, you know. So I try to put my my ears like at the bell. Mm-hmm. And I try to just, you know, blow sound out of the trombone as if the sound was already in it. Sure, sure. It's like I'm not making the sound. The sound is there. I'm just blowing it out of the trombone. Mm. So you, you uh, I mean, this, this gets, you know, conceptual, you know, like every everyone's concept of like, you know, how they make a certain sound and a certain dynamic. I mean, you know, I, there's probably some empirical way to, you know, to uh, prove this or that. Yeah. But I, I think for most people to try and think in, in a musical way of like, what is that sound? Yeah. That what What's the color of it? What's the intention of it? What's the, you know, what are the properties of it? Yeah. So let's back yeah. up then. Because I, I do think we are a bit into semantics. And I think that conversation is actually quite interesting yeah. because I think there's, there's, you know, the semantics matter. I think the words that we use matter, but we might be talking about the same thing or a similar thing. So if we back up, what would you say? I think this is actually a really awesome conversation to have. What would you say are qualities that exist? Like not not worrying about the semantics, just qualities that exist in all great players' sounds. Like like you talked about, like beautiful or something, right? Or, or, or for free or open or resonant or focused or, you know, I'm saying brilliant or shimmering, right? Like you could use any type of adjective for you. Like if you, across the board, people may have different presentations of it. It might be this or it might be that, but are, what commonalities do you think exist among all great players? Well, what you had said previously, purity, it's Mm -hmm. pure sound. There's not, there's no garbage in it. You know, yeah. You know, and it has it it, it has a, a kind of a sheen to it. You know, there's life in it, vibrancy. You know, it's it doesn't just sit there. It it feels like it's mobile, like it's moving. Yeah, it's moving through space. It's moving through the atmosphere. So it's it's dynamic or kinetic. You know what I mean? There's energy in it. So it's a pure sound, but it, there's energy in it, and it it. And it has a, a sheen to it, you know, and it, it's it's lively, you know. It it connotes, uh, you know, life. Yeah, yeah. I have an interesting concept conceptual thing that I use. We're sort of back right back yeah. here in the conceptual, but um, you know, we want our sound to go out, right? And so thinking of it like uh, some people may think about the way they play. If we t- if we use air instead of sound, like you described, we use air. Thinking about going, some people will think about it as a straight line, right? Like mm-hmm. it's going that way. I think about it as a straight line, but I think about it as a coil. Like it's 
traveling in a straight line, but it's like a coil instead of like an arrow spiral. But, yeah, because yeah. that has like it has like inherent energy as it's moving forward, like a slinky, right? You just like yeah. push it and then the slinky goes like there's energy that's moving it. It's a similar thing. It's like that small conceptual thing. I feel like gives this like sort of extra, like you said, sheen almost and life to it without having to really do anything differently. This is honest to me why the words matter, because if you tell yourself a different word, it can make a significantly, yeah. a significant difference in what comes out. Well, I mean, acoustically, you know, we're not, we're not sh shoving sound out of the horn with, with, uh, air, air power. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. The sound doesn't travel because we shoved it <laughs> with air. It. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's a wave. And it travels through the atmosphere. I mean, the atmosphere is a medium. It's like water, but, you know, not as viscous. You know, but if you move your hand, you know, you can feel it, right? Yeah, yeah. So the medium of atmosphere is what the the, the sound, the acoustic sound wave, sound pressure moves through the air. So this whole idea, this is what kind of during this COVID business, I've been, you know, getting slightly aggravated with some of the misconceptions people have about brass instruments, like that there were just like spewing spit all over the place, you know, <laughs> says, well, well, no, I mean, you know, you put your hand in front of my trombone bell and I playing about as loud as I mean, I've, I've done it. I just I hold a piece of paper in front of the bell and play about as loud as I can play in any register. And it doesn't move, yeah, <laughs> you know, so it's, you know, by the time it gets to that part of the horn, you know, it's not going, it's fast at the mouthpiece, yeah. right? Because the air's got to go someplace. Right, right. You know, but, you know, as it works its way through the horn, it just really slows down. It's And it's just a waveform. And then it's, there's an acoustical wave that travels through the atmosphere. So that's why I'm, you know, it's one of the reasons, you know, cogitating about that. One of the reasons I started thinking about, well, I'm just, it's, it's just sound, you know, it's, it's an acoustical thing. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, I remember talking with Scott Lasky. Mm -hmm. You remember Scott Lasky? Makes mouthpieces, right? Right. Well, he's passed away, but. Oh, yeah. I didn't know but, that. Yeah. Well, anyway, so for a time before he went into business for himself, he was the custom mouthpiece maker at Chilkey's, you know, then I used to work there as a mouthpiece polisher long time ago so um but he would say like in the 1980s you know he said it, he said it used to be people would come in with you know a horn or a mouthpiece or something and they would say stuff like you know i like the sound of this mouthpiece for instance you know but i'm having trouble doing this or that is there something you know we could do do to it or something you know and he says, and over time, it's just people just come in and they they just say, hey, can you bore this out so I can cram more air through it? <laughs> it backs up when I blow as hard as I can. <laughs> you know, it, he says, nobody talks about sound anymore. They just talk about how much air they can blast through their mouthpiece <laughs> or their trumpet or whatever it is they're playing. You know? Yeah. And he said, yeah, and that happened over a period of time where people weren't asking him to, to help improve the playability of it they you know they had a preconceived notion that they had to be able to cram x amount of air through the mouthpiece to, to get whatever desired result they wanted yeah you know so it got me thinking about like well that's not how sound works you know you make a sound and then the sound travels and the better the quality of the sound the easier it's going to travel yeah i've learned this so if you have a sound that's just like full of distortion 
and it's out of tune with itself, you know, I mean, you might be able to make it really loud, you know, you won't be very popular, but I don't think it's going to travel. <laughs> I don't, I don't think it travels very well, you know? Yeah. I've done this demonstration uh, in master classes before where I'm like, we're going to talk about like how loud you need to play really, yeah. <laughs> you know? I think we actually, well, so before I tell that story, I'm, I remember in Indianapolis, we actually did this experiment on stage where you went to the end of the stage. I sat in my chair and I played things like Mahler 5. <laughs> I remember this vividly. You had a yeah. decibel meter. Yeah. And exactly. I played Mahler 5. And let's say it was 98 decibels at whatever I would normally play it. And then I did it again, but I played it as loud as I possibly could. And it was like 102 decibels. <laughs> yeah. It was hardly noticed. I mean, maybe four decibels is a lot, but you're not getting like 50 more decibels to play as loud as you can. And then the really telling thing is I remember I played Schumann 2 and it was like 84. I mean, it wasn't like from 98 to like 42, you know, we'd lost like 10 decibels and it really reframed my understanding that dynamics are such a perceived thing rather than they are an actual decibel cranking up and down the, like it's a stereo, like piano is like one out of 10, you know? Yeah. And so then as a principal trumpet, essentially it's really influenced then how I try to be heard without trying to just bury everything around me. Like it is possible to have your sound project and be heard because yeah, if you're playing this balanced sound that's in the center and the waveforms are like vibrating with themselves and there's not distortion like you're talking about, yeah, you don't have to work nearly as hard to be heard, to have a powerful sound, to be nice and you know in the mix and, and present, and you can play a lot longer that way. Yeah, I remember once I played a show in Cincinnati, and it was at this. Uh, I don't think it's there anymore. Right? Like Riverfront maybe riverfront something there's i know they used to their baseball stadium used to be called riverfront stadium but they that, that's not there anymore i don't know it was just like this outdoor venue and it was kind of near a like a amusement park or something so we, we had a rehearsal and we were just killing time and so we went to this like you know kind of this arcade thing where you could like throw a baseball you know at, at mm -hmm. a it would at, i guess a radar gun you know so i thought oh okay so, hey, so, okay. so I bought like, you know, I don't know, however many balls you get for like a buck or whatever it was. And I, you know, so I took it out and I, I heaved up and I, uh, I don't know. It seems like maybe I threw it something like 60 miles an hour or sure. something, you know? Yeah. And I went like, oh, okay. So I'm really going to, I'm going to, okay. I, that's just the start. I'm going to get this puppy really. Now I'm going to throw now. it hard. So I, you know, so I threw, that's why I threw it really hard again. It was like, you know, 59 miles an hour, you know, <laughs> and that really pissed me off. So then I really got, so I got, took my last ball. I did a super wind up and I just flung it as hard as I could. You know, it was like 50 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So yeah, my, my first toss it was the fastest and, and, uh, it, it just said when you mentioned the decibel meter, I, I had heard this story that Joe Alessi had, uh, was working with a decibel meter and he was playing loud dynamics. He was, I don't know what he was practicing. It could have been just anything, but, but, the, but he used it in such a way that he just tried to find the, the, the loudest he could make relaxed. Whereas if he pushed harder, there, there was no more result. You know what I mean? It didn't yeah, yeah. get louder. Point of diminishing he, he, returns or right. something. So, yeah. yeah. And so, I saw him, you know, and I, I told him about this. You know, I asked him about it. You know, I said, I heard you. He didn't know anything about it. You know? <laughs> so, so somebody had made this story up and attributed it to him, and he had no knowledge of it. He said, but it's a good idea. 
That's awesome. I yeah, I think it's so important to to like consider this to me because I mean it's not like yeah, dynamics playing loud. So to me it's so much more of a function of playing with a like a balanced sound and just understanding like you've talked about too, not only having like crystal clear articulation that just immediately sends the sound out, but where you place it within the beat as well. Like yeah. if you're placing it right in the middle of the ensemble versus late or even just slightly early, like you're going to be, their volume will be perceived differently. Differently, right. Yeah. And that's like all things that professionals who have played in a hall with an orchestra for a length of time, learn how to wield those things to make yeah. their job a lot easier, but it doesn't work its way down when you're a student and you're just like, well, to be heard. Right. I'm going to have to play as loud as I can. And then when it's over, I mean, I was in a rehearsal one time in my undergrad and we played this lick. It was like forte. And I just, just laid into it and the conductor stopped and he's like, why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, why would you do that? What part, like what part of this piece makes you think that that's what you should have done? You know, it's just crazy that we, we are just like, well, that's what we have to do. We have to. And so I feel like I run across people from time to time who are so concerned about their ability to, to, to have endurance, you know, I'm, I'm going to run out of endurance and it's just like, I can't do it. And I have to, it's, but it's also like, well, maybe we need to talk about having a balanced sound and we need to talk about making sure that you're within this resonant point of your sound. And then we'll, you know, yeah. well, I mean, yeah, you just can't force. Yeah. You have to stay loose and yeah. relaxed. I mean, I, Mulcahy will say this. He says, uh, when it's really loud, that's when you chill. And when it's really soft, that's when you kill. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You, I mean, you have to be, you know, you're psychologically most aggressive when you're playing super, super soft. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that you have to really be like an assassin. Yeah. You know, I would, yeah. Cold blooded assassin when you're, when you have to make these soft entrances. When it's really loud, I mean, you, you, you just breathe and blow, you yeah, know? Yeah. It's not, it, it, people that, work too hard at that it's you're it's it is it's diminishing returns you end yeah. up fighting yourself yeah and the tchaikovsky and let's say the fourth movement tchaikovsky five um the hardest lick in the entire movement is we go uh, it's like all this loud stuff happens and then i gotta go boom 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 beep, boom 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 like at piano yeah it's like the hardest lick in the entire movement and the other movement, in the first movement, we have that and then those chords at three, yeah. three pieces. That's so much harder than getting through the last page of Chike 5 to me. Because like you're saying, it's like if you're playing sort of in this balanced place, you just have a good time, you know? So I guess all of that is to say, and you said you were talking about it earlier too, and um all of this conversation makes me think that it just should be such a huge priority for people to get to this place of balance and optimum playing as soon as possible in their journey, so to speak. Because once you get there, then you'll be constantly reinforcing this with everything that you're doing. Is that a thing you agree with? Yeah. What does that look like for a person? No, I guess this is this is uh, the Butler University trombone studio mantra. Share it with you. Yeah, good. Yeah. Say, produce your best imagined sound with as little effort as possible. Start notes cleanly and reliably. Connect notes fluidly and vocally. Phrase 
everything you play. So it has shape, direction, and a sense of musicality. And then I go on and expand on it, elaborate on it. But I mean, that's basically the, yeah. the four things. I mean, at any time you're doing probably at minimum two of those things. Sure. Probably like three. Yeah. Probably three at minimum two. And, yeah. you know, sometimes all four, hmm. you know, so you, you, you try to isolate those things in your practice, you know, and just, I mean, you heighten the awareness of, you know, you talk about, what you're doing sometimes isn't as important as how you're doing, but that flip-flops. You know, sometimes how you're doing is more important than what you're doing, and sometimes what you're doing is much more important than how you do it. You know, so I think it's kind of like top of mind. Like, mm -hmm. at, at this particular second, what am I, what of these four attributes that I'm working on is, you know, so they're all, they're on repeat. You know, yeah, yeah. this time it's the sound. This time it's the articulation. This time it's the connection. This time I'm, it's the phrase. But you're always aware of all four of them. It's just like my focus is now more than 25% on this. Yeah. You know? It's 40% on this now. Okay. This brings up something I was curious. I'm, I, wanna, I want your opinion on. Um, when, when you're playing, you have all these, I mean, this is going to be a similar thing. When you're playing, you have all these things to think about. You just named these four, but if we think about it from an even more general, like all instrument perspective, we have things like sound, articulation, uh, flexibility, musicality, style. Like we have these different categories that we need to think about, right? And what can happen sometimes is that, let's say we have five things we want to think about. Well, we can think about five things, 20%. Or we can think about one thing 100%. But the fear becomes, if I think about this one thing 20% of the time, the other four things will just fall by the wayside. And so the way I've, over time, come to try to fix this is that you would just develop a sound in your head that covers all of them. So like the sound you're hearing in your head has beautiful connection. You know what I mean? So it's not like... Because sometimes we think a sound is just the physical sound and not necessarily how it relates passing through a phrase or mm -hmm. passing through time. So that then you're giving your 100% of your attention to that particular thing that like covers all of the different things that you need to cover. Does this make sense what I'm saying? Well, yeah. I mean, I think at, as you learn and practice and then, you know, learn a lot of different music and, and uh, repertoire or, or, or excerpts or Know, the etudes and whatnot. Yeah, you start, you know, you, you see a pattern of notes, for instance, you know, and there seem to be marcato or tenuto. I mean, that's so that's a sound. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So I mean so so it's it's not two things, it's one thing. Yeah. 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 Or, you know, or or the like likewise if it's connected or legato or something like that. It's it's a sound, the articulation in the sound. You know, and then the shape of it, but you know, you just look at the shape of the of the architecture of the phrase, and then you know, so that indicates to you, you know, the musicality, the direction of it. So, yeah. So yeah, I just yeah, it, beca I, it becomes like a synthesis of these things. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I have to imagine that's like where optimum performance is. Is when you can sort of synthesize all these things into like I have this one or maybe two things I'm thinking about. And you're just giving all of your focus and all of your attention to that one thing. And, but it just takes being 
I think actually the way I would do it if I were like really trying to work on these individual things is I would design certain things to work on these things individually where I could give 100% of my attention to these individual things and then gradually synthesize them as I gained sort of an understanding of how I would try to go about doing it. But um, I'm going to really backstep here back to sort of the scales idea. And we're going to try to bring all of this together and into it. Let's say you have a student who has just done a jury or some sort of performance or whatever, and they didn't do as well as they wanted to do. And then they have their next lesson. Uh, what are you What are you saying to them? How are you Are you trying to say, well, it's one of these categories that seemed like it really you struggled with, so we're going to try to hyper focus on this, or are you just saying like? just keep doing it, you know, like we have bad days, you know, like how are you trying to encourage them or be real with them or, or t tackle the problems? Like kind of what's yeah. your, I mean, it's an individual basis, but just, but, well, yeah. I mean, so supposing that I heard the, per the performance, yeah. yeah, which I probably did, you know, usually it comes down to just losing their mental focus. Mm. Unless of course they just weren't prepared. I mean, I just have, you know, I have, a little, I have written on a piece of paper. I hold up like flashcards. I got pieces, things I write on pieces of paper that I hold up instead of saying it. After I've said it enough times, <laughs> I just hold up the flashcard. <laughs> yes. and, and one of them says, the best you can hope for is to play up to your level of preparation. Yeah. Okay. So were you prepared and you just got mentally tired? So like, you know, if they're doing a big scale proficiency where they got to play all different kinds of scales and different versions of this and that, you know, it could be 48 you know, 56, something, some number of scales, you know, I'll just say, well, just build in a break, you know, play four keys and take a break, you know, spray your slide, something, take a deep breath and go on again. So, you know, it's pretty hard to, to start play, blow through all of these things at one sitting. That's a lot of concentration. And I tell them right from the first day of school of the semester that they're going to have to do this. I said, I wouldn't take this lightly. And I, and I can already do it. <laughs> you know, I'd prepare for this. It's not going to be easy to stand there and do all of this stuff error free. So, so, you know, the routine of doing it is part of the preparation. Not mm -hmm. that like you were able to successfully play every one of these scales under ideal conditions at least once. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah that's not why well, I did it once before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. So, so yeah, being you know, putting yourself in the situation—it's like a mock audition, you know. Yeah, I mean, and we'll dedicate a studio class to this. Everybody have everybody stand up and do it in front of other people. So you know, it's a taste of like what it's really going to be like. Yeah, I think that's something that I I didn't really understand when I was when I was in school. That I don't know if I could have understood or if someone tried to explain it. But the idea that the way I practice should reflect the thing that I need to be able to do. Yeah, and so. If I am, if I'm trying to say I need to be able to play all these scales uh, straight through with minimal errors, like is my practice reflecting that that's the goal, you know, or is it like I got it right one time, sometime before, you know, like is yeah. that it? Is it sort of half haphazard, or 
are you designing things specifically to, okay, I'm going to test on this day. I'm going to see where I'm at and I'm going to use that information to maybe slow some things down and really try to work my way through. Why am I making that mistake so that I can do it? And then I'm going to work on that for a few weeks and then maybe yeah. test myself again with the ultimate goal that I, you know, I, I just feel like that was missing from my preparation. I just threw like pure willpower at whatever it is that I wanted to do. And it just like sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. Well, right. So it's um it's like our our colleague Tony he, he says I don't teach the tuba I teach excellence. So you know yeah apply that to you know your preparation of anything sure you sure. know it's like okay is the way you're doing this going to pay off for you when it matters most yeah yeah, yeah. or is this just scattershot yeah. Yeah. You That's know, a good and, point. And, and most everybody, it's scattershot because nobody likes to do it. So, you know, I know what you're working on with your methods and, you know, and, and the app. And we spent some time looking at it today. I mean, it it's it's genius, really, because it it's it takes it takes the the uh, the willpower part of it out of the equation it's just like here's the assignment right just do it yeah you know yeah and and it'll work and you know and then then i like to enhance that by doing a lot of other playing in all of these keys to try to temper the scales for the tonality that they're in so it doesn't sort of sound like a you know some kind of bastardized version of some other scale <laughs> you know it's like try try try, try not you know, was that E flat again? Pound, <laughs> pound, a, you know, square hit, peg yeah. to a round hole, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we should end this podcast. Yeah. I think just the first four points of continued success. Oh. I don't think we need to get in the advanced techniques this particular oh, not podcast. This time. Oh. Did we do this the last time? I don't know. I feel like I don't know. I feel like as I'm asking you to do this, it's like I have this weird memory of you sitting over here talking like this yeah, and was, yeah. yeah i might have asked you but there might be people who didn't hear that one so we're going to go over it again because it's i it's, it's four points for continued professional yeah, this development. is very important number one wake up number two whatever it is don't say it three listen and four listen better so yeah. So we can, yeah, so we can like elaborate a little bit. So yeah. by wake up, I mean, I mean, for some people, this means get out of bed, <laughs> you know, actually get your ass out of bed, you know, and, you know, make your coffee or whatever it needs you need to do to get moving and get to where you're supposed to be. It also means, you know, show up like 15 minutes early to everything. It, yeah. And it means kind of wait, you know, kind of a uh, awareness, right? A, we were talking about awareness, yeah. just like wake, wake up, smell the coffee. And then just like, wake up to like, where, where am I in my life? Yeah. In a kind of a metaphysical way. Where am I? What am I doing? Is this, is this my path? Am I, am I doing the right things to get where I'm going? And so, you, you know, so it's like, you know, just kind of like open your eyes and look at the world around you and see what you're doing and, and, and if you're doing the, the right things to help you accomplish this. Yeah. Jordan, oh. do you know who Jordan Peterson is? He's, he's mm -hmm. like a pretty famous, uh, I, I think a clinical psychologist teaches at the University of Toronto. He's 
kind of all over the place if you know where to look. But uh, he's got it's the same thing. He talks about like if you ask somebody, are you doing the things that will make you better and that you know that are right things to do? Most people are going to answer no. You know, they just yeah. uh, like people generally just kind of understand that, like, there are certain things that they could be doing that would probably be benef- beneficial and good. And this is, sounds like to a greater extent what you're speaking to is like, yeah. just like kind of pay attention to what's going mm-hmm. on. Some self-awareness of like, you know, what am I doing? Is it good for me? Can I change some things around that might make it better? That kind of thing, it sounds yeah. like. And so, so too, whatever it is, don't say it. Just stay out of trouble. Okay. I mean, everybody thinks they're a comedian, you know, everybody thinks I mean, so there's a time where you're, where you can tell the jokes and it's, a, there's a time for you to sit back and just laugh at the jokes. Yeah. Okay. So sometimes people get to tell jokes and other people get to laugh at them. And most of the time you don't get to tell the jokes when you're in a, any particular professional situation. So an, another version of that is, you know, never miss an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. Okay. Yeah, I feel so, like I've I've had to learn that over yeah. the course of time. And then another way to express that would be on no account do anything to prolong the rehearsal. So what that means is like you're unsure about a note. Do you really want to stop the whole ensemble, you know, and ask about your note when you could just <laughs> like look at look around you, you know? No, do you have, you know, just fix it yourself or go look at the score. Or if you have to talk to the conductor after rehearsal, but so many people, they just can't keep their hands down. You know, it's like that. (laughs) It's it's like that character from the Simpsons, you know, it's like, Oh, teacher asked me, I'm ever so smart. What was his name? Martin. Yeah. I don't watch Simpsons. The the guy that can't keep his hand down. He's always got to be talking to the conductor or the teacher or something, you know? So, yeah. I love those questions too. Cause it's like, it's just like raise your hand. And like, sometimes it's like in a, in like a, like a modern, like, you know, new piece. And they're like, wow, I have a G in my part and they have an F sharp. Is that correct? It's yeah. like, well, <laughs> maybe, but like, is this really like, you couldn't just like have waited yeah. or what if you just played two G's? <laughs> Would yeah. anybody care? Yeah. You know, maybe the composer, I guess. Well, at but. some point, you know, you have to recognize that there's a conductor and it's their job to fix this stuff. Yeah. If you have a, if you think there's something wrong with your part, you know, see them after the rehearsal or go to the library and get the score and check it out yourself or go to IMSLP. I mean, if it's, if it's standard repertoire that's been played for centuries it's probably right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so number three, listen, you know, you can, and you can, so number three actually informs number two in the sense that like, well, if you listen more quick, carefully, you might be able to fix your own problem. Yeah. You know, but yeah, listen to what people say. If somebody fixes a note in their part and, and then you three minutes later ask about the exact same note in the same place when that question's already been answered, asked and answered, then you look like a fool. But if you never ask the question, then you don't have to worry about it. And then you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. That's how I do it. But if you were listening, you would have found out that, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's the, that's my problem. I'll just fix it right now. Yeah. So there's that. And, and then just listen to the people around you fit in 
fit in. You know, you can't go in to any situation with this kind of this preconceived notion about how you're going to play. You have to kind of wait and see how everybody plays. And then you're just a part of this machine. You're a complementary part of the machine, Mm -hmm. you know. And then four, listen better. Okay, well, that's just a good part of our conversation that we've had today, you know, getting into the finer points. And that's what distinguishes, you know, a good functional musician and like an artist yeah, totally. that people desire, that people want to play with. Yeah. I mean, you hear these stories all the time of, uh, of, I mean, we, we sort of orchestral players live in this space where like, I suppose it's possible that someone who is not uh, agreeable to work with could win the job and then just a hundred percent fake it in their tenure process and then they get tenure and then all of a sudden they just turn into a person that nobody wants to work with. But outside of that context and that rare occasion, you know, like the ability to just like be a person who can listen to like, you know, know what's going on to be able to hear and respond to certain things, to be a person that's like also just, I would say cognizant of people what they're saying, like if you're new into a situation, just like you're saying, keeping your mouth shut and just like listening and like, you know, taking it all in about, you know, certain things. I find you would probably get a lot more help than you'll realize too. People yeah. might be willing to just like lean over and say, hey, what, what do you think about this or try this out? And um, you might get a lot more of that than if you're yeah, you know, constantly going out well, there. Well, yeah, you, you see this a lot. People come in <clears throat> and they've already made up their mind how they play. You know, it's, you know, when they're playing in some other group, you know, that maybe doesn't play the way you think you think they should. Yeah. <laughs> but it's their, it's their band and that's how they do things. You know, and they, they play like that for a reason, you know, it's the acoustic that they play in. It's the conductor they have. It's the history they have, you know, they're, they're, if it's, you know, if it's a group that's had like you know the same consistent leadership for a long, long time, they have a way. They have a particular way of doing things. Yeah, and you yeah. just have to respect that. And fit in, just fit in. And it comes down to listening. Yeah, and, so. and your your ability to discern to to a fine degree how things are being done. Yeah, yeah. So you can imitate it. Yeah, I would say. I mean, that's something that. Now, you've played here a, a few times now, so like yeah. you maybe have you can start to expect a little bit about what it might be like. But I would say you would like you probably are just like I know about this because I play in so many different scenarios. So you have the chance to practice this over and over and over and over and over again. And so I think it's just how does someone just is there a way they can sort of prepare, someone can prepare for this opportunity, or is it just sort of like a you're just you as you gain experience, you get better at this. Is you know what I'm saying? Is there a way to like help with no experience in this particular other than like school ensembles, but you're constantly moving around and maybe there's not an established thing. So when you move into this professional sphere where you have all this sort of tradition or the way things people might do things, like how does someone kind of catch get on the train as quickly as possible? That's a good question. I mean I mean, if you just get into the habit of fitting in, I mean, you, you, everybody's playing somewhere, you know, 
there's a there's a time to lead there's a time to follow there's a time to just you know be one of the sheep you know and i don't know i don't have a great answer for that yeah yeah i mean even something is maybe as simple as like you know i'm going to try to play with these two players or this i'm going to play duets with this person and just try to copy them 100%. And then tomorrow I'll play with a different person. I mean, even something as simple as that, do you think that would be valuable? Oh, for that'd that be kind great. Of- yeah, play, playing duets and, on, and chamber ensembles is great because it's imitative. Yeah. A lot of the music is imitative. And so, you, you, you know, to the best of your ability, you know, that, that's a great way to, to learn to, yeah. to, to mimic and sound like somebody else. And here's that. In terms of, you know, style of articulation, note lengths, vibrato, you know, yeah. all this kind of thing. I would say from my perspective, too, if you're someone listening to this and you're in school and you have the opportunity to play duets, you should probably take advantage of as much as you possibly can. And before you turn into someone like me who is no longer surrounded by people to play duets with on a regular basis, you know? Now, being in school is a wonderful opportunity. Yeah. I mean, there's always people around. You know, you can just grab somebody. You can just barge into their practice room and say, <laughs> hey, let's play duets for 10 minutes. You know, I mean, yeah. most people will oblige. Yeah. You know, it's a great way to work on your sight reading. Totally. Yeah. All right. Do you have any final words of wisdom or uh, just things that you feel that you, right now is important for you to say? I didn't see that coming. Let's see. I don't know. Nah. I think I said everything. You don't have to. No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to force you to do anything. Yeah. This has been a pleasure. Has it? Yeah. Well, I had fun. Yeah. I hope people. You're a good interviewer. I hope people yeah. enjoy Listen to this. I feel like I I enjoy talking to you because there's just this level of like, not just realness. It's certainly realness, but it's like I, you can tell it's born and like I've been doing this a while. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not like I've like for me. So much of it is you can tell I'm like working through things. Like I have some ideas about things I think work, but I don't have this bed of just like life experience to fall back on and be like, well, I've seen this work so this many times or whatever. So it's always really good for me to be able to, to kind of just wrestle with ideas with someone like you who has a lot more experience and has just done this, that it, it can be, it can be good for me to do that. And I hope it was interesting for our, the audience to kind of hear me wrestle with some of this stuff and get some of your perspective. So it's good. Oh, I hope so. Um, that's all we, that's it. That's all, that's all we're going to do. That's it for today. That's it for today. All right. We're going to go and we're going to play check five in like 45 minutes. What time is it? 5.17. Oh, check it out. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Okay. All right. Well, is there are there ways that if someone was like, Jared, I like what you said. I wanted to tell you. Is there ways that people get in touch, like Facebook or something? Is there any way someone can get in touch with you? I'm on Facebook, Facebook Messenger. Yeah. Uh, I'm on Instagram. I think it's all in my name. It's Jared Roden. All right. You can find me. Yeah. Okay you wanted to so if you want yeah. to say like i like what you said about this jared he's a nice guy oh, i'm a super nice guy yeah also yeah. remember that i'll try to find that article from time that said you're the most you're the smartest person that also plays trombone yeah i want to see that yeah i'll find yeah. it i'll have to it might i might have to search for it though Oh, I'm sure it's here someplace. <laughs> All right. If anybody needs to get in touch with me, you can do that on that's not spit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode or had any other feelings that might have happened while you were listening, please consider giving this podcast a rating and a review on iTunes. And do not forget to share this on social media. 
Jared, as always, it's a pleasure to have you uh, in my domicile uh, that we could spend some time together. And uh, I'm glad we did this. Thank you. And you're welcome. I always enjoy visiting. Yeah. I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong. Be kind to yourself. Never stop growing. And we'll see you next time.